Blog Talk Radio.
that the uh, that the resolution that will manifest itself and that we will be greeting face to face is going to be one that is a peaceful and uh, and long lasting resolution that uh, allows Americans to continue on in a much less restrictive fashion and that uh, does not destroy every single thing that we know. We're certainly racing toward some type of financial, uh, I, I hate to say crisis, but, uh, but you know, we're, in actuality, we're always racing toward some type of financial crisis, right? I mean, always. We're always headed toward some financial crisis, even if we don't know it. And uh, and certainly we're headed toward some type of uh, of financial, uh, uh, certainly problems. I'm going to read you something from uh, uh, the economy in crisis. And this is talking about the uh, economic problem facing the United States. And this is... Uh, uh, this was written mid-month last month uh, by Thomas Hefner, and uh, you can find it at uh, economyandcrisis.org. Uh, I'm just going to read it straight out to you because uh, this is uh, a, a pretty a pretty good uh, analysis of what we're doing. He says that the United States is facing economic disaster on a scale very few nations have have ever. Experience, and that's because we're such a you know we are such a large nation, and we are spread out across the globe. He continues, most people are unaware of the easily observable signs of the crisis, where it came from, and how to stop it. While we persist, calamity, we've quietly become a second-class country in many respects, and that is certainly true. We've got like this. Uh, We've got like this big facade, this American superpower facade, you know, like the uh, like the old Western towns. You know, you look at the uh, the front of all the buildings in the Western towns, and they look really pretty fancy. You walk around behind, and you go, "Oh my gosh, there's there's a great facade up. There's an old rotten tent that is really the building. It's got holes in the roof and everything else. That's kind of it's kind of how we're starting to look right now. He continues on, we no longer produce what we need to sustain ourselves. We import more than we export. And we are selling off our assets and taking on massive debt to sustain a standard of living we can no longer afford. Not only is this uh, not the way we became a superpower, but it's a sure way to lose this status. And certainly, uh, what he's talking about here, one of the things he's talking about is how outsourcing of the American jobs has been hurting the economy on every level. Now, I know that, uh, I know that, that we have certainly trained ourselves to expect uh, extremely cheap goods to be able to go into uh, Walmart or any of the big stores and buy uh, tons of stuff 
at rock bottom prices because they've been made by people who, uh, well, ten years ago that were making twenty five cents an hour, and uh, and even today many of the uh, even the the high paid laborers uh, in the world outside of the United States are running about four dollars an hour. So uh, I'm going to read something to you real quick from uh, James Moreland. Uh, he says outsourcing in the United States is obviously enriched the heads of massive corporations, but for workers and consumers, outsourcing creates a multitude of problems. It poses a, a whole host of problems for shipping, communication, culture, but the biggest setback is going to be in the loss of quality, and we've all seen this, right? I mean, you 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 go to the Walmart, and you get that great-looking shirt, and uh, you only pay uh, seven, six, seven, eight bucks for it, but after three or four washes, you notice that uh, one of the buttons is gone, and uh, and the seam is no longer held together. Uh, it's unraveled. And so, what are you going to do with it now? You're going to either sew it up yourself, or you're not going to pay to have somebody do it because you can go buy another one for six or seven bucks. Uh, the capitalist market in the United States makes it nearly impossible for any successful company to avoid the lure of cutting American industrial jobs and shipping the work abroad. And this is with our free trade agreements like uh, NAFTA and the, and our membership in the World Trade Organization. This has caused the United States to be forced to compete with third world countries like China and Mexico where wages are almost always less than $4 an hour. And it says this really has little or nothing to do with patriotism. It's simply a matter of market competition. And when the means are available... They are essentially unavoidable by leaving our businesses with no protection and giving out full access to our markets. Then it makes no sense to produce the goods that we would normally produce in the United States, right? I mean, unless every single person did it, because if you don't do it, then your costs are going to be higher. Your product, the cost of your product is going to be higher, and you're not going to be able to compete with your competitors. Their products, their costs are going to be much lower. Their products are going to be much lower costing, which means they're going to come off the shelves faster than yours. Meanwhile, uh, America's most ruthless competitors, they're doing just the opposite. Like in China, uh, if a company wants access to those 1 billion-plus consumers in China, there's a minimum percentage of their parts and labor that must be produced in China. That's the way it's set up there. Uh, unable to resist the potential gains in such a massive market, many companies move to China uh, just to enjoy that benefit while continuing to ship their products back to the United States. So, so our companies are packing themselves up and moving over to China. When I say packing themselves and moving or to China. I'm not talking about any uh, physical, tangible assets. I'm talking about they they're, they're moving their operations over there, right? So they 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 now are over in China, employing Chinese workers, and uh, <clears throat> and not United States workers. Now, since entering the World Trade Agreement in 2001, our trade with China has resulted in the loss of 28 million jobs. Uh, that's through up through 2013. Now, according to the most recent study by the Economic Policy Institute, now those fortunate enough to in, 
and retain their jobs, uh, witness their annual earnings decrease by roughly $1,400. And American workers are put into direct competition with one another as more more employers look to offshore production to nations with lower wage rates. Okay? Uh, Also, in place of the tariffs, any type of protective tariffs, more than 140 nations use a consumption tax called a value-added tax, or a VAT, a V-A-T. Now, this is used to penalize imports and to subsidize exports. World Trade uh, uh, Agreement. There are obligations. <clears throat> the only developed economy on Earth that does not employ a VAT is, wait for it, the United States. And because of this, we are a, a tremendously horrible trade disadvantage. Now, realistically, we should consider implementing a border consumption tax as part of a competitive tax plan for the United States. As part of the fix to these issues, we have to make it profitable for U.S. companies to employ workers in this country and produce goods. We shouldn't have to worry about quality jobs leaving the U.S. and rely on uh, foreign companies to provide employment. We need to control foreign trade as every other nation other than the United States is doing. By looking at both sides of this equation, you know, it's obvious that while we're gaining short-term profits and few jobs, we're forfeiting our manufacturing industrial base. Eventually, we'll be left with with really no uh, American-owned factories, and our nation will be completely dependent on other countries for work, resources, and a fair standard of living. That's what happens when that's the that's the end game of outsourcing. Uh, and and this is I'm not gonna try and uh, get into any conspiracy uh uh thinking, but uh I will say that uh, I'm sure this is part of a plan. Uh, you know, an economic plan by many of our uh, competitive uh, the countries that we compete with, China, uh, the uh, European trade organizations, uh, you know, certainly to, if they can take away our ability to produce, then then we're going to be completely dependent on on their abilities to produce and their products. No different than uh, the United States' dependence on foreign oil. We have the oil. We have our own oil. But if the, uh, and you're seeing this happening right now, if you see the the Arab oil uh, dropping drastically, reducing prices on on their oil, They've now destroyed uh, who knows how many companies that were uh, that were gearing up and had spent a great deal of money on preparing to uh, uh, to build pipelines, uh, to build refineries, to do oil exploration, uh, and and it's going to it ends up protecting. Uh, 
the uh, uh, the Middle Eastern oil because if we can't find it, uh, drill it, pump it, produce it, then we're dependent on them. And whenever they raise the prices again, uh, there's not going to be any reason for them not to. There's nothing we're going to be able to do about it because we're going to have lost uh, these years where we could have been continuing to uh, uh, explore for oil, uh, produce oil, refine it. We're going to have lost that because because we can't afford to do it right now. Not with the price of foreign oil uh, having been reduced so much. <laughs> the same thing with uh, with all of the rest of the things that we buy and uh, and use uh, every day. The uh, from silverware to baseballs to T-shirts, so on and on, every single thing that we use. If if we can't can't produce it anymore, then we have to get it somewhere else. <clears throat> and and we're becoming a uh, completely uh, dependent on foreign production. Now the other thing that's coming up. And I think this is as as dangerous, even more dangerous, is the existing uh, American companies that are here, that are still doing uh, production and stuff like that, are being sold at breakneck speed to foreign investors, to foreign interests. And uh, this is actually called the the Great American Sell-Off. And... uh, you can find a a functioning ticker tape of this americawakeup.net americawakeup.net okay that's a uh uh functioning ticker tape that shows uh, how quickly american companies are being sold off uh and let's see <clears throat> Uh, the most current data available on foreign acquisitions. All right. We've got uh, Hawker Beach, uh, U.S. Fuel, Goldman Sachs Group. Uh, this is a aerospace aircraft industry that, which has been sold to PVA Aviation, uh, United Kingdom. This is uh, They're operating out of Kansas. $128.5 million. Parkway Clinical Labs uh, in Pennsylvania which is a health services corporation sold to Israel. Uh, DIC Entertainment Holdings, radio, television, broadcasting stations, uh, being sold to Canada. This is out, out of California. Bentley Pharmaceuticals in New Hampshire. Uh, it's a uh, uh, drug manufacturing company sold to Israel. Blue Hill Creek Gold was a mining operation. Sold to Canada, Electrochem Tech, uh, which is soap, cosmetics, personal care products, etc. Uh, sold to the United Kingdom, uh, company after company after company. And the listing here, uh, I'm just showing you the first 10 out of 16,611 companies uh, since uh, 2007, so the last nine years, uh, last uh, uh, 
eight years. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Reliant Energy, which is electric, gas, and water distribution. Reliant was a huge company here, uh, here in Texas, sold to United Kingdom. So the companies, uh, American companies, are being sold one after the other after the other to foreign interests. Uh, if you look at uh, properties in uh, all of the major cities, uh, in, well, in every single state, you'll see great chunks of land and, uh, and, and buildings, etc., are being sold to, to everyone except Americans, uh, Japanese investors, uh, Russian, Chinese, everybody owns America now except America. Pretty soon, we're going to run out of things to sell. Uh, we're going to be like those old garage sales that you see where they're, they're, uh, they've sold everything of value and uh, they've got nothing left except uh, five or six tables of trinkets uh, that they're trying to sell, and that's all they have left. <clears throat> and uh, and nobody's buying it. That's going to be us. And and it can't go on. Uh, it, it can't go on forever. It just can't. Uh, we're going to run out of stuff to sell. There won't be any companies left uh, to sell to. We won't. We will no longer make anything in America. Nothing. America won't have anything that we make. There will be nothing that we produce uh, except debt. So there, if if something cannot go on forever, then it can't. If something cannot go on forever, then logic dictates that it will end. So we know that the current economic policies that we're running cannot go on forever. So they're going to end. And it doesn't appear that they're going to end in a slow or gradual fashion. It appears that they're going to end that minute when they run out of track uh, uh, right at the edge of the uh, the Rocky Mountains. And I don't know that there's anything that we can do about this, or I don't know, certainly I don't know what there is to do about it, but I know that... Uh, that this is happening at a terrible speed. <clears throat> I would like for us, uh, I would like to have a better uh, understanding of of what we as a nation are going to. Uh, going to be doing about this, I'd certainly like to invite uh, some of the folks uh, who have a better understanding of economics 
come on the show and uh, and give us a uh, a primer on it. Uh, but it's this is is absolutely not sustainable. Now we're looking at the ticker on here. We're talking about uh, uh, two trillion eight hundred seventy-seven million four hundred ninety-four. Two trillion eight hundred seventy-seven billion four hundred ninety-four million six hundred fifty thousand sixty thousand seventy-one thousand. That's how fast it's going. Seventy-nine thousand eighty-seven thousand ninety-one thousand. Uh, this is this is this is just a, a rate that unsustainable. So. Dying a death of a thousand cuts here. Uh, it, it's it's like the you know like the folks that uh, you know they're killing the goose uh, and to eat it, and there won't be any more eggs because the goose is gone. We're forfeiting our manufacturing and our industrial base. So uh, certainly something uh, to think about. Uh, I know that uh, uh, switching tracks here. I know that uh, there's a lot of additional things going on uh, across the world. And I was recently uh, talking to a friend who uh, who ended up catching a deployment to uh, to Cuba to work there at Guantanamo. And uh, I was listening to the news the other day, and they were talking about uh, about I guess uh, ramping up the speed on cutting some of the detainees at Guantanamo loose, which I'm absolutely in favor of because uh, because I think this is a horrible thing that's going on. Uh, it scares me to death because I see that as uh, as there, but by the grace of God go all of us, right? I mean, uh, certainly these guys uh, may or may not uh, need to be in some type of uh, uh, prison, or maybe they need to be executed. Uh, you know, I don't know, and, uh, and none of us do because everything that's being done is being done uh, behind closed doors. There, they get uh, no representation. Uh, they are held without uh, for any length of time. They're held uh, and uh, and no chance of release. Uh, it just seems to me like a very, very bad situation. And uh... you know, Scott, that that whole business goes against just about every principle we've got in America. And when we encourage people to tolerate the violation of those principles, uh, 
you know, we can say, well, because they're bad guys, because it's like this or that, then we start making exceptions to our morality. And this week it's okay to lock up this guy because we think he's an Al-Qaeda fellow. We're not sure. But we're going to lock him up this week, and, and, and then next week we're going to lock up that bunch of veterans. Or that bunch yeah, of well, that, that's the thing is that uh, is that incrementalism. Uh, well, I mean, we're saying that uh, we're saying that. I mean, it goes completely against uh, against the rules that we've always played by. I mean, you know, in, in, under our system of justice, uh, if you're accused of a crime, then you have a, a right to know what crime you're being confused, uh, accused of. You have a right to uh, to be represented. Uh, you have a right to confront your accuser, and uh, they're getting none of this. And that, now, listen, let me make it clear that I'm not saying that uh, I'm not saying that I don't think that uh, that they that they may not deserve some type of punishment or or anything else. I mean, I'm. If they deserve to be in prison, then let's put them in prison. Let's put it, and let's put a number of years if they're going to be there. If they deserve to be executed, then by gosh, let's do it. Let's let's execute them. I'm, I'm not saying I'm against that. I'm just saying I'm against the this whole this whole secret uh, detained uh, without uh, charges because, like you're just saying now, and they keep saying, "Oh no, we could never." We we could never do that to Americans, but they but they left a big loophole in it so that they could. If uh, if somebody says, you know, I think that Sam is a terrorist, and uh, and they are in the position of authority, then there's no reason that they can't say, okay, let's load him up, ship him over there. And uh, and you, Sam, you may be saying, well, you know, I'm not a terrorist, and. And I'm, I want a lawyer, and I want to, I want to know why y'all think that. They're going to say we don't have to tell you anything. We're not going to tell you anything. We're, we're going to lock you up for how long? I don't know, a year, ten years, twenty years, forever, and uh, and that'll be it. Now we've we've shut you up. We've shut you up good. And this is this is a bad thing, and. I mean, I understand that they're saying, look, these guys, you know, they're bad guys. They they shot people. They blew stuff up, et cetera. Well, okay. Uh, they did. And uh, and if we were at war, then I could see uh, having them in a military prison for the duration of the war. But we're not at war. We have some loosely defined, really uh, ambiguous uh, quotation marks, war on terror, global war on terror, which just uh, which doesn't really define anything. And uh, it just this isn't going to work for me. I don't, I don't like it. You know, we've got people that say, well, that can't ever happen here. It has happened here. It already happened right here in America. Ask the ask the uh, how many how many hundreds of thousands uh, of uh, uh, American citizens ended up in concentration camps in World War Two. One hundred twenty-two thousand. One hundred twenty-two thousand American citizens 
by executive order of President Franklin Roosevelt. Locked up for the duration. That's right. No due process. No trial, nothing. Yeah, so don't tell me it can't happen, because it's happened in the lifetime that plenty of people remember. My aunt is still alive, and she was in one of the camps. And uh, she doesn't... Uh, she doesn't have any anger over it, or at least she says she doesn't. She doesn't appear to. I, I don't know that I wouldn't be angry about that. If somebody came in and just said, okay, uh, we're taking over, we're loading you up, uh, you know, your business is going to, you're going to lose your business, your home, everything, and uh, you can't you can't say can't happen here because it already has, and uh, and that's the thing that scares me. So I'm, I look, you know, if these guys, if these Al-Qaeda guys are as bad as they say they are, here's what I would do. Load them all up onto an aircraft and uh, take them back to Afghanistan. When they get off the aircraft, hand each of them a couple of AKs and a couple of uh, magazines uh, and, uh, and let them go in, uh, in fourth IDs uh, area of operations. And that will solve the problem. Our guys can take care of themselves. You know, if these guys want to be rebels, let them be rebels. And uh, and we can fix it that way. But from what I understand, most of the folks that are locked up have been locked up for almost 10 years. So they don't have any, uh, like, any current information available. They don't, you know... Uh, it, it, I think, for all intents and purposes, this is a, this was maybe an idea that they that they thought was good for a time or something, but it's it's done. It's over. Yeah, we we can't and, uh, live like that. We can't tolerate that kind of behavior here and and maintain any kind of moral superiority. I, I don't know how those people can look themselves in the mirror. When they released that study about uh, waterboarding them and all, uh, a couple, three weeks ago, everybody and their brother was jumping up and down all over the Internet, waterboard them, torture them, do whatever the heck you want with them. But none of them could answer me the one question that I would ask them. Why didn't the military do that? Why didn't the United States Army or the Marines that were capturing these guys take them out back and waterboard them and torture them and get the information out of them? Why weren't they held in a military prison and interrogated? Why were they held in secret prisons overseas and interrogated? And because they said the military they still are. refused still... to do it. Oh, yes. There's still the military uh, refused to have offshore holding to do areas with all over. Mhm. And uh I just feel like it's a uh, this whole this whole ridiculous uh uh war on terror, Patriot Act. You know, remember the uh the Boston bombings uh just recently? Remember how the uh how the law enforcement I believe there was uh there was uh, actually some uh 
uh, I don't know how much of that. I believe there was some type of military action involved too. But the uh, they shut down almost the whole city for those two guys, house to house, warrantless searches. Uh, I don't want to be that protected. I don't want that kind of protection. I think you know, that, uh, all these people that are saying, uh, you know, we have to we have to give up certain rights so that uh, we will be safer. Well, we've had we've already had that discussion a couple of hundred years ago. You know, those who would uh, give up their rights uh, to be safer. Uh, I don't have the quote in front of me here now. I wish I had memorized it. Uh, who would give up their freedoms for safety deserve neither. And I think that's a lot of what's going on right now. We're, we're giving up a lot of uh, freedoms. We're giving up a lot of our morals and ethics because we think it's making us safer. And uh, uh, I don't buy it. So I hope that uh, I hope that our leader will uh, eventually make good on his campaign promise, which was over six years ago, which was to close uh, Guantanamo uh, as soon as he came into office and uh, and close it down and get rid of it, get rid of that whole idea because it is a dirty business. It's a dirty business that we're entered into, and uh, and I don't like it. Now we have. You no, know, it's uh, kind of kind of ironic that those two guys with the Boston bombing, uh, the, the one that they ultimately caught that they're getting uh, selecting a jury on right now, was discovered by a citizen who was violating uh, the police and the mayor's orders to stay in his home. Guy walked out back and saw someone broke into his boat. And he was supposed to be staying locked up in his house. Right, right. Pretty ironic, really, that it was caught by a fellow violating the rules. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, people aren't thinking about those they were, basic they were going house to house. <laughs> They were going house to house, uh, uh, demanding to come into the house, uh, to search the houses. No warrants. They were uh, stopping. uh, Nobody had a right to travel anywhere. Uh, Everything was shut down uh, for the sake of, quote, safety. And uh, uh, like I said, I don't don't want to be that safe. I don't want to... I don't want to be that protected. <laughs> I think that uh, if most Americans really carried it through, you know, carried the game through, uh, I think that they would understand that they don't want to be that protected. And uh, and they would uh, be unhappy with how the, the government is doing it. It, it sounds good. You know, on the outside of it, it sounds good to be protected, but 
that so the reality is is that it's not good, and uh, other people just don't get it. I think so, that quote you were looking for a couple of minutes ago, those who would give up essential liberty to produce a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. That's it. That's it, because, uh, you know, we see this all across the country, and uh, I think one of the worst places, and remember we had uh, uh, Becky Akers on to talk about the uh, – and talk about TSA and what they're doing. And uh, I think that TSA is a perfect example of this, how we've given up so many of our freedoms for to supposedly be, quote, safer, and uh, and how those the, the people running uh, those things uh, are... Using their powers and how it's not making us any safer. I mean, look at uh, uh, look at the last uh, the last line of events of things that have happened. Uh, the TSA was ready to jump up and take credit for it, but TSA didn't do anything. Uh, in all of the cases so far, it's been the uh, the public that has actually stepped up and and done something. It hadn't been TSA; they haven't done anything. Federalizing all those folks didn't do anything. So, uh, so I'm completely on board with that. You know, for those that would give up, give up their safety, I mean, give up their freedoms for safety, deserve neither freedom nor safety. And uh, and I think that we're, uh, I think that we're rapidly pushing toward a, a a resolution with that, which brings us up to the like the current situations that are developing with Second Amendment issues. I mean, you've got uh, you've got one nation, uh, and certainly I believe that the states should have the sovereign abilities to determine the way that they hold their own laws. And uh, <coughs> and take care of their own uh, problem stuff, but I think that some of the stuff, uh, like gun laws across the states, having one state where uh, where you can uh, legally uh, possess and carry a uh, you know a a firearm, and all that stuff, all the the only thing that changes is you travel a hundred uh, yards. Now you're in a state where. Uh, possessing that same legal firearm is not going to send you directly to prison. Uh, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, I can hop in my car and drive down to a little sleepy town of Chaparral, butts up against El Paso, and uh, go into the bank there, uh, put my pistol on, uh, do my business, go into the convenience store, buy gasoline or whatever, and drive another 50 yards into El Paso, and I'm in violation of the law because you're not allowed to open carry in Texas. Not harming anything. Uh, likewise, in New Mexico, I'm allowed to carry my uh, my gun concealed within my vehicle. It's an extension of my home. 
according to our interpretation of the law here in New Mexico. But if I go into Texas, that's out the window. Right. It's a little bit out there. Right. And there, right now there is a uh, uh, some controversy over in uh, – gosh, dog it. I just read about this uh, earlier today. <clears throat> Was it uh, – I keep wanting to say Pennsylvania – but I don't think it was Pennsylvania uh, and not Massachusetts uh, or Vermont. Anyway, one of the uh, one of the states there, uh, the uh, the state attorney general is refusing to uh, defend the uh, citizens uh, over a recently passed law, which stated that the uh, the laws concerning firearms within the state, the cities could not have more restrictive measures than the states, than the states. Right. Had. And several several cities did. And the uh, the attorney general uh, said, uh, who is a, a Democrat, said that uh, she is not going to defend them. She said the governor's office could if they wanted, but she wasn't going to. And uh, and we see this. Uh, you know, state after state. Luckily, Texas, uh, through the hard work of a lot of our uh, of our folks here in the state, uh, is trying to push through uh, new legislation that will allow Texans to carry uh, to open carry. I believe Texas is one of only six states that don't now. But uh, to push through legislation for open carry uh, or constitutional carry, which would certainly be great because because uh, we're one of the few states that don't. And uh, now you guys in New Mexico have open carry there, right? Yes, we do. And uh, but you said that. Uh, that they're in New, you were talking about crossing the border from New Mexico into Texas. Right. You go to the bank, right. Yeah, and that would get you in trouble because, and that's ridiculous, because there shouldn't be anything, that, any reason why uh, going 100 yards uh, is going to get you put in prison. So... Uh, I'm 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 really I'm really hoping that a lot of the uh, a lot of the work that's being done is going to uh, is going to end up clearing a lot of this up. You know, we had uh, several cases recently, and of course uh, the uh, the recent case in. Uh, in Washington D.C., Heller, uh, which kind of still kind of amazes me because uh, uh, you know the Supreme Court has not been called upon to clarify this issue in the last 217 years since the Bill of Rights was adopted, and uh, we finally get uh, some discussion of it uh, in. Uh, uh, 2008, and 
and certainly I think it's time for uh, more of a, a national discussion of this. Now, if you ask the Gallup, of course, the one of the leading uh, polling organizations has uh, has polled folks, you know, relentlessly on this. And uh, let's see. The, uh, the question, do you believe the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees the rights of Americans to own guns, or do you believe it only guarantees members of state militias, such as the National Guard units, the right to own guns? Uh, out of the people that owned a gun, 91% said that it guarantees the rights of Americans to, Americans to own guns. Other people that did not own guns, 63% said it guarantees the right of Americans to own guns. Uh, the question, do you believe the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees the rights of Americans to own guns, or do you believe it only guarantees members of state militias the right to own guns? Uh, out of the... Uh, uh, out of the overall... Uh, answers from the American public, 73% of the American public that it guarantees the rights of Americans. Only 20% that it guarantees the rights of the state militias. So the the American public is is pretty much, they've pretty much made their, their beliefs uh, known, and I think that the, uh, I think that the Time is now for us to keep pushing so that we can get some of this cleared up because uh, the the problems and if you look at a map uh, they all you have to do is google uh, uh like concealed carry laws or uh traveling with firearms stuff like that and you'll you'll get a map that shows you that if I get in my vehicle. And I want to drive to, uh, say, New York State. I've got to be kind of careful of where I drive and uh, and how I carry the firearms. Because uh, if I start off here in Texas, you can have a handgun in your vehicle, but it can't be visible. It can be loaded, but not visible. Matter of fact, I got stopped today by the uh, the uh, Highway Patrol Department of the uh, uh, Department of Public Safety, like Safety, State Trooper, and uh, and he asked me, uh, "Are you asking for my uh, vehicle insurance?" And I said, "I think it's," uh, and that's something I wasn't, you know, I, I've been stopped a couple of times over the last two years, and uh, they one time they asked for it, the next time they didn't, the next time the guy just said, "I don't need that," because I can pull it up on my computer. And uh, so this time I handed the, the officer the driver's license, the trooper, and said, do you have your uh, uh, your proof of insurance? And I said, oh. I said, well, I think it's in the glove box. I said, but I don't want – and I started to reach over there, and then I just stopped and froze. I go, hey, I, I need to open the glove box to look in there. He goes, okay. He goes, no problem. He goes, wait. He goes, do you have any firearms in the vehicle? And I said, well, actually I do. I have several, and uh, they were right there on the seat with me. At uh, you know, a handgun. It was zipped up in a bag, 
and then I had a uh, an uh, an AR fifteen that was laying on the seat that had a just a scarf laying across the top of it. And uh, I told him, I said, I got a couple of guns right here, right beside me. He goes, okay. He said, well, don't don't grab them. I said, no, no problem. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay. He goes, I'm under new directives that any firearms I come across, I have to run their serial numbers. So I actually had to exit the vehicle. And he asked me, he said, are they loaded? I said, yep, both of them are loaded. And uh, he got them both, took them back to the vehicle, ran the serial numbers, then brought them back to me. He just handed them to me. He just he said, "Don't uh, do me a favor." He said, "Don't don't reload them while we're standing here." I said, "No problem." And uh, but uh, well, I'm you know, I'm sure there are people who would start jamming the, the mag back in and racking it, and you know, if I were an officer, that would make me nervous. So, but uh, but my point is is that. Uh, in Texas, I've got to keep the uh, I've got to keep the handguns uh, out of sight, and I have, but I can have them loaded. Now you got to the, you get to the uh, to one of the the, the the next states, and that state may require you to keep the handgun unloaded and on plain sight, like up on the dashboard. So, so you have to pay attention to. Uh, to where you are and uh, and what you're doing, we got the the recent case in New Jersey. Uh, what was it, Shanine Allen? Uh, she was uh, uh, from Pennsylvania, but she was, I guess, driving through New Jersey, and. Uh, uh, I don't know if she uh, if she if she had it says a crossing lane violation. I'm not sure what that means, but uh, she ended up telling the the New Jersey State Trooper, this doctor, that uh, she had a handgun and she had a handgun permit from Pennsylvania, uh, and now she's going to go to prison because she drove across the state line with that handgun and. Uh, under the under New Jersey's laws, the sentence law, the judge has no authority to suspend the sentence or to remove it. Uh, she's going to go to prison. That's just the way that it is. And I, I just think it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so uh, I'm hoping that we're that we're going to continue to move forward on a, on a broad base on the Second Amendment issues that we're facing. There's another thing to consider in in that whole thing, too. Much as we would like to have some uniformity in the laws from state to state and not have those little problems, uh, the kind of thing that we want really can only happen with the feds. And I'm loath to give them the idea that they have the authority to regulate my possession in any way. Exactly, exactly. I want it to be a uh, an issue that is resolved among the states, and uh, you know some of the states are beginning to talk about that, uh, like uh, 
you know, right now Texas has uh, uh, like reciprocation with with a, a, a great number of states. That means if you have a concealed carry license uh, in in a majority of the other states, Texas is going to honor it. But a lot of states do not honor uh, concealed carry permits from other states. There needs to be uh, there needs to be some type of, of of deal worked out by the states, not by the feds, but by the states, saying, "Look, if we're going to give you your guys the okay to carry, then you're going to give our guys the okay to carry." And uh, and there needs to be, and most of this needs to be done not by not from the top down, not by the feds forcing it on people. It needs to be done by the folks in the state. And uh, and I'm hoping that that the groundswell of public opinion on this is going to force some of these issues through. And uh, and it seems like it is in a lot of cases. Now, the uh, – uh, oh, what was I just looking for? I, I was just – you know, I lost my – I lost my place on this, but uh oh no what I was saying this is uh hold on just a second let me let me find this uh let me find this this link that was sent to me, so you're gonna need to talk for a second sam while i'm uh, okay while I'm finding this you know with uh, uh try and get the states to come up and cooperate on their firearms laws and policies. Uh, it can be done, but the people have to really get involved in it, and they have to remember that we have a couple of states that can't maintain a consistency internally within their state. I happen to have a, a concealed carry permit issued by the sheriff of Potter County, Pennsylvania. Uh, in Pennsylvania, the sheriff issues them. And that permit is good everywhere in the state except Philadelphia. And Philadelphia won't honor a permit issued anywhere outside Philadelphia. Uh, Likewise, if you have a New York State concealed carry permit, it will not be honored by the city of New York. Right. Absolutely. That's disgusting. New New York won't even let other police officers carry in their city. Right. Okay, here's something that I was reading that was sent to me today, and uh, let me give my disclaimer first. Uh, I am a I'm a staunch defender of uh, uh, of law enforcement, law enforcement officers, and uh, and this is an article that's talking about. Uh, the events that are currently going on in New York. For those of you guys that are not up to speed on this, uh, there was a uh, there was a gentleman who was killed uh, during an altercation with the police, and uh, and the public was pretty upset about it, and uh, the mayor wasn't that happy about it. And I guess he. Uh, he made some comments about it, which the police force didn't like. Now, because of this, not because of what the mayor said, uh, I think it was just because of the events 
it went on with the police officers uh, killing this guy who was, who they said was on the street selling untaxed cigarettes, which is not something you should have to die for. Uh, they, uh, uh, another person who appeared to me to have been mentally ill ended up uh, ambushing and killing two uh, police officers, just walking up to the car and killing them. And, of course, that's, that is completely reprehensible. Uh, but the NYPD has gone on a work stoppage and uh, and what they've done is uh, they have uh, refused to write I think that their uh, uh, their normal uh, number of tickets and uh, summons and stuff that they write <laughs> that they are uh, they're down up to 93% uh, as far as uh, the number of citations and stuff that they've written. 93%. So I guess if you want to uh, speed in New York or commit some minor crimes, this is the perfect time to do it because NYPD is saying they're not going to uh, they're not going to write any tickets and stuff because they're trying to punish. Uh, the city. Let's see, criminal summonses and traffic tickets are down more than 90% from this time last year. In uh, many uh, precincts, the weekly tally of criminal infractions was near zero. Uh, Union leaders are denying an organized movement, uh, but the drop is viewed by many as a protest against Mayor de Blasio and his perceived lack of support for police. The uh, the effort by these officers is costing the city a lot of money. They say, and obviously, crime is a big business for the city. Uh, court, criminal, administrative fines add up to uh, uh, $800 million to the city's annual budget. Eight hundred million dollars. Uh, to put that in perspective, the cigarette tax is going to bring in $52 million. Hotel taxes generate roughly $547 million, and commercial rent taxes will supply $720 million. So, talking about uh, uh, almost one-fourth of the city's revenue, parking tickets alone, uh, the single largest revenue-generating fine, bring in an average of $10.5 million a week. $2.5 million a week for parking tickets. Hmm. I'm, I'm uh, getting the idea that they're a revenue-generating organization and not a police department. Well, uh, it, what can you say? I mean, uh, we're, talking about, uh, we're talking about quite a bit of revenue that, uh, that they're taking from the city. Now, either... Either it was either they were wrong to do it in the first place, uh, and they were just robbing the citizens, or they're actually committing crimes themselves by looking the other way. So one way or the other, they're you know they're they're complicit in this. Now 
this guy that uh, was writing about this, and, and like I said, I'm not uh, I'm not trying to dog law enforcement. I have a great deal of respect for law enforcement. I have a lot of family members that are law enforcement. My business partner is in law enforcement. Uh, these guys, uh, they they the brunt of them uh, are good folks. They're doing the doing a good job, uh, but the the statistics that they're trying to use in uh, many cases across the nation saying that they have to do this, do things that they're doing uh, in order to be safe, to come home and be safe because they have the most dangerous job. Uh, the statistics are showing it's a little bit different than that. It says that there were 126 on-duty deaths among all officers in 2014. There's approximately 1 million sworn officers, and this is counting the federal, state, county, local government entities. Uh, and there's a, another 2 million or so employees who are not sworn. They're still, you know, but they still work with law enforcement. That provides a rate of fatality of 12.6 per 100,000. Now, that it sounds pretty rough off the top, right? But if you're a, if you're a logger, you have a fatality right rate that's ten times that of a police officer. If you're a fisherman, uh, you have almost uh, ten times. If you're an airline pilot or some any kind of commercial pilot, you have uh, four times uh, as much of a chance to be killed. Uh, the guy who uh, the, who puts the roof on your house, uh, three times as much of a chance. Uh, on and on. So one other thing to think of in that in those statistics, Scout, I believe you said there was a hundred and twenty some uh on duty fatalities. Hundred and twenty six on duty deaths, right. Right. Uh the majority of those had nothing to do with crime per se. Uh well, there's a lot of uh, vehicle accidents. Yeah, they they kill a lot in vehicle accidents. If I remember correctly, only uh, 54 officers were killed last year in armed confrontation with criminals. Right, right. <clears throat> so a lot of the a little uh, different story. <laughs> a lot of the the a lot of the people that are getting shot and killed, and and there's been a, a really a big rash of of uh, of officers killing dogs and family pets for some reason. Uh and it's all they always say, Well we have a right to, you know, to go home safe. And you do, but it, it's no different than anybody else's right. And uh and I think that uh this is causing a lot of grief between between law enforcement and the American public. And it's grief that we that doesn't need to be there because uh the 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 like I said, the majority of law enforcement they're doing uh, they're doing an excellent job. They're doing the right things. They're uh, but uh, but I think that the folks that are doing the bad things and are getting away with it because of the supposedly the justification that hey you know we we have a right to shoot first and ask questions later because we have a right to go home safely. I, I'm not I'm not buying that all the time because. Everybody's got a right to go home safely, you know. So, 
I think that uh, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on uh, on working out the relationship between law enforcement and uh, and the public because uh, because it has over the last few years it has really uh, it has really grown strained and there really sh- it, there really should be no reason for that. And there certainly should be no reason that uh, that so many of the officers who are doing things that are that are are just plain wrong uh, that are getting a pass on it. And it's just uh, it's making all, it's making all of the folks in law enforcement look bad, and they're all having to take the heat on it. So. There's certainly a, not a lot of work that, that needs to be done uh, right now on helping to fix the relationship between uh, law enforcement and the American public. I know that uh, I know that that is a, uh, a pretty uh, a pretty hot topic there in uh, in New Mexico from time to time. Yeah, we've had more than our fair share of questionable shootings uh, to the point where they invited the Department of Justice to come in and and examine. I didn't necessarily agree with that. Uh, we actually have a, a board of citizens that are supposed to be looking into these things, but they have absolutely no authority. They can look at it and say whatever they want, but it doesn't happen. Right. And we're finding that a large proportion of police officers who are found in the wrong on um, some of their actions are not being removed from the force. Or if they're fired from one department, they turn around and go right over to another department and get hired on and continue the same practices. They're not being stripped of their uh, law enforcement certification by the state, and that's starting to become an issue now amongst the citizens. Uh, well, here's another thing that has come up during the work stoppage: is that uh, regardless of whether the NYPD is trying to to punish uh, De Blasio's administration or uh, or to demonstrate uh, how vital uh, you know their their the aspect of their day-to-day work on is there. Uh, they kind of have made a boo-boo in this because their their work stoppage and their uh, refusal to uh, to bother or fine or or arrest the thousands of people uh, that they normally arrest, and we're, and we're talking about literally tens of thousands. Uh, it has not led to a spike in violent crime. So, <laughs> so the the argument that the NYPD was using that their aggressive levels of law enforcement was absolutely necessary uh, for the safety of the New Yorkers is, is now even less believable than it was before De Blasio took office because because they're looking the other way for everything that's going on. And and violent crime hasn't increased. 
So, uh, I mean, I don't know if this was a great idea for them. Looks like a money-saving opportunity for me. <laughs> Time to uh, to go to New York and uh, speed or uh, spit on the sidewalk or whatever uh, because uh, because they're not going to arrest you for it or they're not going to write you a ticket. And, uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can understand the police... Uh, I, I can understand that if they are upset, they need some way uh, to publish that uh, that they're they're being upset with whatever's going on. But I think that uh, that not uh, that not doing their duty is not one of the ways to go about it. You know what I mean? I mean, I just don't think that that's. Uh, there's more appropriate ways to, ways to protest that. Right. Right, especially, like I said, when this highlights uh, the issue that, uh, oh, you mean you guys you guys didn't uh, arrest, you didn't stop and frisk everybody, uh, you didn't arrest thousands of people and write them tickets or anything else, and violent crime didn't go up? So, so okay, All right, let's think about that for a minute because that's usually the issue that's used. <clears throat> well, I don't want to keep I don't want to keep dogging uh, law enforcement cuz like I said I'm I'm certainly pro law enforcement. I just uh I just thought that was uh, uh I thought that was a a, a pretty uh, strange event that's going on there in New York. And Can I throw uh, one I last certainly... item in there. Yeah, absolutely. When I was learning the police trade, it's something that I took up for a while. Uh, There were some principles of policing that were developed by a fellow by the name of Sir Robert Peel over in England. Mm -hmm. And we teach those principles here in the United States, or we did teach them. And one of those principles was to maintain at all times a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and that the public are the police, being only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to those duties that are incumbent on every citizen. That, that We don't have a separateness between society and our police. And we've allowed and sometimes encouraged this separateness. The police are the public, and the public are the police. The police exist only because they're giving it full-time job to the duties that are incumbent on every citizen in the interest of community. People are losing track of that. They have as much responsibility to enforce those laws and maintain order as anybody. The only difference with police is we pay them to do it full time. That's all. Right. You know, they're, they're citizens. Right, and I don't like it. Uh, I'm always trying to make sure that that whenever I do discuss it, uh, not to say. Uh, 
not to draw the line between police and citizens uh, as police and civilians because uh, the police are civilians as well as the rest of the citizens. They're not part of any military force. They're simply uh, sworn officers of the court who are there to enforce the laws of the court. And, uh, And they're subject to the same laws as the rest of the citizens. At least they're supposed to be. And that's one of the things that is causing a lot of grief uh, with the uh, with with citizens is that uh, in many cases they're not being held uh, to the same standards that uh, that they're holding other citizens to, and uh, and it's causing grief. You know, anytime you have one group of folks, whether it be police officers or uh, or congressmen or whoever, everybody's supposed to be obeying the same laws. You know. Nobody is above the law. Nobody's below the law. Everybody's supposed to be obeying the same laws, and uh, <clears throat> and I hope that uh, we can keep working uh, on resolving these issues. You know, uh, getting back on the topic. We're talking about thoughts on the coming new year and where we're headed and how will we get there. And we all have our our fundamental desire for liberty and, and to allow ourselves to be good citizens without being oppressed or being oppressors. And we all have different ways of going about doing that different activities we get involved in and we had discussed this a little bit earlier I'm not going to bring up a specific instance but I'm going to reiterate to our listeners out there that whatever your efforts are to make the nation better whatever you do to try to mold it into the more uh, Uh, nation providing more liberty for each of its citizens, that you do it with integrity. Uh, Go at it seriously. Mean what you're doing. Uh, But go at it with integrity. You, You need to maintain a moral high ground. And if you allow yourself to be drawn into suspicious behaviors, unusual circumstances, you can set yourself up for failure. Uh, The public relations battle is more important in what we have to do than anything that's ever going to happen with a gun. And you cannot maintain a positive uh, impression with anybody if you don't maintain a high level of integrity and and good function. You need to be out there right. being the kind of citizen that you want the rest of your citizens to be. You, you can't go out there and be separate from them. You can't hold yourself apart. You can't have a different standard. And if you want truth and integrity, act with truth and integrity. But be an example of the kind of citizen that, that you want to see in the country. And that'll go a long way right there. Just maintaining Absolutely. that personal integrity. 
Well, you know, when we were doing, uh, when I was doing Appleseed, uh, we used to kind of, uh, we used to kind of laugh at times because we would have, uh, you know, we got, uh, I got law enforcement, uh, on the line all the time. And, uh, and a lot of times, I mean, you could, you could just tell, you could tell who they were without them in a uniform or anything else because, because of the way they acted. And uh, it was like, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say disrespectful. It's not like they were disrespectful. They were just uh, disdainful of, uh, uh, you know, of, like, getting uh, of interaction with uh, citizens. And uh, <clears throat> now, normally, that would wear off, and by uh, by Sunday, you know, it would be, it'd be like that on Saturday, but on Sunday... Uh, you know, kind of wear off, and they would be, uh, you know, kind of like back to normal. But certainly on Saturday, a lot of times they would be very, uh, very standoffish, very disdainful of uh, of the rest of the folks, you know, there. Uh, I know that uh, uh, what does my dad call it? He has some name for it, but uh, and you know, I'm sure that. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's like that with a lot of, uh, you know, occupations. <clears throat> I know a lot of times uh, you can get that, uh, like, from soldiers and stuff like that, that, uh, you know, they're standoffish. But normally I don't get it from anybody uh, anywhere near what we get it from law enforcement, you know. And different types of folks in law enforcement are, you know, are better or worse at it. Some of the worst ones that uh, <clears throat> that I had to deal with and, and – and I don't say this uh, uh, to, like I said, to down uh, to down any one group or anything, but uh, especially because I got uh, treated so nicely today by the uh, uh, by a DPS officer. But normally, the uh, uh, Texas Department of Public Safety officers, the uh, state troopers, were some of the worst as far as uh, you know, as far as having some imaginary line between them and the the citizens and uh folks like uh FBI and ATF were like the least uh the least standoffish. I'm sure that you've had to I, uh, to deal with quite a few when uh, you were running lines there in uh New Mexico. Sure, sure. Um you know, although the military folks are more disciplinary oriented and, and a more hierarchical structure, you take that off when you go home at night. Uh, I used to tell young NCOs, come in to work in the morning, put your game face on because you can't be that way all day and all night. Uh, right. And when you're in your social interactions with people uh, outside the professional realm, you need to be just with them, part of them. And I'm sure my marriage would have lasted a long time if I had come home and played that first sergeant routine at home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that ain't going to fly very well. No. You have to get in and out of character just like you're on a stage. In a lot of ways, you are. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, because there'd be times, you know, when I would be over, 
uh, like he'd go over to dinner or something with the, uh, like a first sergeant and, uh, you know, be over at his house and stuff. And of course, you know, it's no different other than, uh, other than the army has pretty uh, strict rules about, uh, fraternization, but, uh, you know, the first sergeant was an enlisted man. And so was I, <clears throat> but, uh, uh, you know, he was a completely different guy at home uh, with his wife, <laughs> and he was on Monday mornings at uh, 5 a.m. at PT. I'm telling you, there was no there was no roaring and yelling and and do this and do that. It was yes, ma'am, and uh, you know it was very soft steps. And uh, and of course, you know, I I, I kind of joked with him about that, but. Uh, uh, you know, I mean that's just that's the way it has to be. If you're going to, uh, if you're going to, if, if your marriage is going to last, and of course that's what happens. That's why a lot of uh, marriages in law enforcement and military don't last. They don't know how to, uh, they don't know how to to turn it off. You, you got to take it so, off. We're kind of breeding some institutional paranoia with our policemen too. And I think if we were a little bit more, uh, uh, a little less critical and a little more uh, liable to give thanks where due, as citizens, we would we would gain a lot with our police. Uh, and oh, yeah, a lot we, of our they, we've got that whole we got that whole us versus them, them thing that is really coming to a bad head. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's nothing that says that we as citizens can't work to defuse that a little bit. Uh, right, but also a lot of the problem too is I think that uh, that it's caused by uh, by the code of silence, you know, and the on the blue line. If uh, <laughs> there's a, there's plenty of cases. Where, uh, where police, where officers do the wrong thing, and everybody knows it's wrong, and and instead of uh, instead of coming up and and you know coming right, right to the front saying, and everybody saying, you know what, he was wrong, he was wrong in what he did, he needs to be fired or even put in prison or whatever. Uh, everybody either keeps silent or they defend it. Because uh, because of that code, because of uh, uh, a lot of them know that if they open their mouth, then uh, then next time something happens and they need backup, it may not show up. You know, because they're supposed to be uh, you know defending each other, and I think you should defend each other when you're right. But I think when you're wrong, when you've broken the law, uh, the, I don't think that code. The code of honor. I don't think that that applies. You know, you know if, you, if you if you know that somebody's done something wrong, then the code of honor doesn't apply. And I don't mean throw somebody to the wolves. I just mean if you know for a fact that somebody did something wrong, then they shouldn't be being protected from the top all the way down. You know, they should be subject to the same laws that everybody else is. You know, if I if I let my airmen get away with ignorant stuff and don't make an effort to correct it, soon all of my airmen would be ignorant. 
That's right. And uh, you, know, you you have to maintain standards, and sometimes that maintenance gets kind of rough. And you know, sometimes you well, get some people in jail. It's always rougher to do the right thing. It's always rougher, you know. I mean, even as you know, as parents, you know that too. But it's always rougher to do the right thing. It's always rougher to enforce, uh, you know, rules and curfews and everything else. It's much easier just to look the other way. <laughs> so, and so that's what a lot of folks do, because because if you enforce a rule, then you have to go, you have to deal with the, uh, you know, the the anger or the disappointment or whatever from that. But if you don't do it, then you're certainly not uh, doing yourself or your or your charges any uh, favors, you know. It's like I brought up with uh, with that business with the prisoners, with the guys at Guantanamo. The military didn't get involved in that torturing and secret prison business. Because institutionally, the military knows it's not right. And they wouldn't play. Right. Uh, the, the Navy was forced to take custody of those people down there. But the military doesn't play that stuff. And that's part of that honorable business, too. And uh, right. uh, a lot of people out here, you know, could easily get the impression that I really like Arab terrorists, and nothing could be further from the truth. But I'm going to treat them like I treat any other uh, prisoner of war until there's a law that tells me otherwise. That's right. And, and, uh, and if that law you can is tell a lot, right <laughs> yeah, you can tell a lot about uh, a nation or about an army by the way it treats its prisoners, you know. Well, uh I think that uh I think that I'm going to uh to call it a night for tonight and uh and I'm still working on uh, on some kind of a system to uh to send out emails to everybody. I certainly haven't found a good system yet. Uh something that's not uh, uh that is not uh as difficult as what I was using to try and maintain it because when you send out a bunch of emails uh, to folks, somebody wants off the list and uh, and I still haven't found a good system that will allow me to easily find that person that wants off the list and get them off the list and stuff like that. But I'm still working on it but uh, and uh, I think that I mentioned last time that I'm looking at uh, at working with uh, Blog Talk and uh, as far as monetizing the show, but uh, we have uh, we have quite a few guests uh, coming up in the next few months. And I think that folks are going to be happy with. And as always, if there is anything that uh, any subject that that uh, you guys want to hear, then sure and let me know because I'll do uh, my absolute best uh, to either get a great guest or to put together a show covering uh, any of the stuff that you guys would like to hear. And if there's uh, certain subjects you'd like to hear more than others, like uh, prepping or firearms, be sure and let me know, and I'll be glad to try and wait it in that direction. Because like I said, I do the show not for me, because uh, I could be painting or 
uh, or AMI, other honeydew stuff, or or uh, mixing a drink and relaxing. Uh, and Sam could be too. Uh, we're not. We're here to do the show uh, to try and uh, and and make it have some positive effect uh, for the listeners. So be sure and let us know if there's uh, anything that uh, any subjects that you would like to hear. And I hope that uh, Sam, I hope that you have a wonderful new year and uh, everybody that's listening uh hang fire uh i hope that uh you guys all have a wonderful new year and we'll see you uh, this next thursday 7 p.m central until then uh take care and god bless and uh, keep you all and keep working uh keep working to move this thing forward you have a safe and healthy new year too scout and all your family. All right. All right. Thank you, sir.